0: Howdy, welcome to another week of Canon Calls. This week, I had a great opportunity to talk with Mark Horn, who is the author of Solomon Says Directives for Young Men. If you enjoy the episode, please go find that book everywhere books are sold. And additionally, you can find Mark Horn's commentary on the book of Mark, which I very much appreciated, on the Canon shelf. It is called The Victory of Mark, and you can find that at canonpress.com. So, without further ado, meet Mark Horn. All right, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. Special guest today is Mark Horn, who wrote the book that I greatly enjoyed called Solomon Says. Directives for Young Men. Thank you so much for offering your time. I'm glad to do it, Jake. Thank you. Yeah. Like I mentioned, I greatly enjoyed the book and I thought this, for several different reasons that we'll get into in the interview, is a great book for 2020. One thing I wanted to start with is sort of situating Proverbs. So, Growing up, I think the extent of the teaching of proverbs that I received was sort of a discussion about the efficiency of the proverbs. So these work sometimes or generally, but don't expect them always to work, or don't put your trust in them. God's not your butler, etc. Can you help us situate the book of Proverbs within the rest of the Bible?
1: Well, yeah, in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, let me just address that thing about you know the generally reliable, not always. Yeah. If you think Proverbs is, is primarily concerned about material results, and it is obviously somewhat re- concerned about those things, but I would say it's primarily concerned with the kind of person you become. Okay. And thus, I would say that the Proverbs in encouraging wisdom, they work 100% of the time. They make you a better person. They make you more like God. They make you mature if you learn to ingrain them into your personality as you grow up. You know, wisdom does the talk about her being the the way to riches in Proverbs, but the wisdom also says that she is more valuable than anything else you can name. Right. So I would say that that's more of the, an accurate way of, um, looking at Proverbs. And I, I do, uh, we, we talked before this started about chapter eight. I actually think, um, Proverbs is, you know, for example, I would, I would, Greatly disagree with anyone who would claim that Proverbs is different than Ecclesiastes in, in that regard. I even go through ways that Proverbs uses the same kind of word "vapor," which is often translated as vanity in Ecclesiastes. In, the, in our circle, in English translations, it talks. It uses the term in the same way about different ways that people try to get leverage in the world, and it's not going to be a good idea. Right. And another thing. Another thing. Generally, just kind of riffing off this. The idea that Proverbs is like simplistic truths that are going to lead to success in life, where Proverbs is over and over again encouraging you not to follow the example of the wicked, because it looks like everything's working out for them. Right. I mean, so there's no way in which it presents a simplistic worldview or a simplistic picture that you do good and therefore you get rewarded and you do bad and immediately things go south actually it's just the opposite things almost never work out right away anyway. So there's lots of chances to get false inferences or misinformation if you don't trust God and his word. So, all right, that's, that's my little caveat (laughs) there. Now to your question.
0: Well, I was going to say there's an, there's an obvious and everybody would know who they are or a particular kind of preachers who would treat the Bible that way, where they put, they may go to a proof text in the Proverbs and say, you know, this is, your future if you'll just take it. God will bless you a million times. A million, you'll be rich, yada, yada. But w- what I always thought or what I found more prevalent are folks who would see the Proverbs disconnected from everything else and largely just say, there is no cause and effect to the world or to see basically hedging against... Right. Basically, I've found that to be way more prevalent and a bit more—I don't know—that sinister is the word. Obviously, the the prosperity gospel is very damaging, very bad. But I—I guess maybe annoyed is be, is the better word. Of just I've been more annoyed with people hedging against stuff that Proverbs actually says.
1: Well, despite going into that big long little diatribe about the other, I actually have the same background as you. I think. Okay. Okay. And I, I think, actually, what's, what the sinister thing behind what the, the impulse that has a kernel of truth in it, of course, because, of course, it can be reacting against, like, you know, making a gospel a means of gain. Right. Or godliness is a means of gain. But, you know, Paul goes on to say, actually, godliness is a means of gain. If it comes with contentment. Right. I think, honestly, there's a sense of trying to deny responsibility. Hmm if nothing in Proverbs is to be taken out seriously, then there's no way my life right now can be blamed on me. And I, I, I which look, is convenient. I, I, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's not that I'm a great success story in this. I'm actually more learned from like error in this regard.
2: Okay.
1: I, I think I use, like, I think I used to credit myself with not being like this, one of these people who's so overly ambitious. Hmm. And I look back on that and I think, sluggard. That was it. There was nothing. That was not what was going on. It was not, that was not so virtuous. Now, there's a certain way you can do it that would be wrong. But again, I just, I just don't think that's, that's the key. Um, or that was, that was a self-flattering interpretation of what I already wanted to do, which is not to be too concerned. That's good. so, So I look back on that and I think, no, that was wrong. That's good. So you say situate Proverbs, there's a couple of different ways you can do this. Like in biblical terms of biblical theology, this book—I've written other books—and this book is like nothing I ever considered writing before, and it's nothing I would would have ever expected to write until I did it. Um, because there's actually very little biblical theology in it, but in a sense, um, I mean, if I was to situate this in like the history of what God wants for humanity, and I I do talk about that in the general terms, but I, I would go to Genesis and say, look the first thing God did is make say that he wants a race of kings and queens. He wants people to take dominion over the world. And, you know, when Solomon is about to become King, he knows that to do that, he has to have wisdom. So the idea of wisdom is really implied from Genesis one. And when Solomon asks for wisdom, he says he's like a little child, not knowing good from evil. In other words, not able to really discern and make decisions about hard cases. Hmm. There's several different times in the Bible where not being able to know or discern to good and evil is mentioned. And it's never about people who are like, don't have a conscience or don't re- literally know the difference between right and wrong. The knowledge of good and evil is the ability to be discerning, to make judgments, to, the, to hear a case and not not decide it before you've heard it but all the way through. And so it really ties into the whole tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were adults, like physically I assume when they were created at whatever age that was that they were kind of, instantiated in but they needed wisdom and the problem is they decided to try to take a shortcut and grab it before it was given to them by god and they did gain some wisdom by doing that but it was the wrong kind it was not a good way to do it right and genesis ends you know so as a result they realize they're naked and they get clothed and you know genesis that's a theme because joseph at the end of genesis Gets his garments taken away from him when he hasn't done anything wrong. He gets stripped at least a couple of times, and then finally <laughs> he, times, he's yeah. lifted. Yeah, he's from his coat of many colors, and then when he, you know, Potiphar's wife, and he's dumped into this prison, which you know was actually a kind of salvation for him because I, I doubt that slaves who were really believed to try to rape their masters' wives got the benefit of going into prison, but. I'm sorry, I'm getting, that's a different, different podcast. we we'll we're not talk about any more about that. But the point is, he's enclosed by Pharaoh, and he's acknowledged, Pharaoh says that he's a wise man. He's a spirit of wisdom. The spirit of God is in him, and he's wise. So he's given royal garments, and while Adam and Eve deprived, were, by grabbing forbidden fruit, deprived the world and imposed scarcity on it, Joseph, the wise, clothed, glorious ruler, he gives bread to the world. He um, feeds the world and saves it from starvation. So that's the whole idea. Wisdom is a huge deal. And, you know, Deuteronomy talks about that if they mature in the law, if they're faithful, that this law will be their wisdom before the nations. And so Proverbs is the fulfillment, really, of that kind of covenant promise, going back to Moses and addressing a situation that's, you know, that's really important in Genesis. It's that they've gained wisdom and they've gained a new level of kingship. Now, what's interesting is, you know, Proverbs is not a guidebook for how to make hard choices. Right. It doesn't read that way at all. What it is, it, it it it's basically a character manual. It's about, it's about doing, learning to do the right thing. And I mean, by learning, I mean, practicing, I mean, becoming skilled at it. I mean, like, I mean, it's about learning to do the right thing. Like you say, learning to throw a ball or if you're taking boxing or, you know, learning to throw a punch. It's, right. it's actually trying to encourage you. And in fact, my, you know, one sentence summary kind of is Proverbs, you know, you know, the like the law and there's lots of commands in the Bible that tell you right from wrong, tell you what to do. And Proverbs has, repeats a lot of those. But Proverbs is about how to become a person who does the right thing all the time, does it more quickly, is more prone to do it, does it more, uh, with more alacrity. What does uh, James say? Be slow to speak, be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. All right. He doesn't say don't talk. You're allowed to talk. He doesn't say don't get angry. Getting angry is the right reaction sometimes, but he wants you to become a person who sh- drags those down a, a good deal from what you would be your baseline normal response, and works on being quick to hear. Those that's just, those are habits. Right. Those are things that guide you, and so. Ultimately, I think Proverbs is about how to become a self-ruler, and that doesn't mean necessarily developing an iron sense of self-control. It means doing the work to train yourself over time to be quick, to do the right thing, and be slow to do things that might be self-sabotaging and hurt others. So it's about, I mean, actually, I think Proverbs is about love, and the point is love without power is useless. Hmm. I mean, we've all seen like in, in movies and maybe and probably in real life, too, you know, romantic relationships where the partners, you know, one loves the other, but is totally toxic to the other hmm. because he's got no control of himself. So um, I argue very hard in the book that it's about being a king over yourself that, in fact, the dominion mandate to take dominion over the world. That goes. As I say first, it's not like temporally first because you kind of do this as you're doing other things, but it is a high priority that you take dominion over yourself. Let's take one example, just uh, chapter six, six to eight. Um, go to the ant, sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, notice, he doesn't just say the the ant work that's the last line he she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food and harvest but there's there's a, a phrase about how that's done without having any chief officer or ruler hmm. this the person who's become an adult doesn't need parents anymore, but doesn't mean he just doesn't have parents it means he is his own parent he parents himself he doesn't have to be told what to do because he is he takes he is concerned about himself, and he he makes himself do things that are good for him, and thinks ahead, rather than having like what that's what your parents do for you when you're a small child. So you know, compare that to Proverbs twelve twenty four: the hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. If you won't take control of yourself and take responsibility for yourself, and develop yourself into the kind of person who has who habitually does the right thing is productive and does things to prepare for the future, not isn't just living for the moment, then you'll eventually become so vulnerable and so hurt that you'll have to be be put under the authority of another person. And that's not a good place to be. That's not what you're meant to be. Right. So wisdom says by me, King's reign. I take that as actually the best summary statement of problems as a whole. You want to reign, even if you're a servant, you can reign. And you got to do it by wisdom, by developing this character, which if you do, you'll have good speech habits, which will allow you, by the way, to weigh options. You know, um, I don't have the proverb in front of me, but there's one that's very convicting to me about he who answers before he hears it is his folly and shame. Hmm. So that basic habit, which is if someone is in the bad habit, they're going to have to work on changing that because it becomes this habitual action that you just can't stop. And that makes it impossible for you to even think clearly. You can't think unless you gather data. So these speech habits lead to the kind of thing that we read about in Solomon's reign about him being able to hear cases and make wise judgments.
0: Right. One thing you mentioned, you said you've written several books, but you never saw yourself writing this one. I'd love to chase that for a second. When did you start writing this book?
1: Well... About 12 years ago, I started oh, wow. memorizing
0: Proverbs.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, no, 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 but it has to be, I'm sorry, you asked to. you asked, you're going to regret asking this question. Anyway, um, I, I started re- uh, memorizing what we call the aphoristic parts, uh, started in chapter 10. I okay. went up from 10 to 12 before my brain started rewriting over my, what I'd previously memorized. I, I you know, my IQ is not high enough to go too far, but at one time I could, I could recite straight through 10 through 12. Wow. And in the process of doing that, you have to um think about
2: kind of how
1: how there might be some kind of order in this chaotic material because for one thing, you're trying to prevent yourself when there's repetitions, you could actually use those to jump over a whole chapter. Like there's there's a line in chapter ten and an identical line in chapter eleven. I could accidentally like cue myself wrong by, you know, jumping over that. Because, right. So I tried to think about if there's some themes and So I started writing and blogging about proverbs and started thinking about how it made sense about out of Genesis. Genesis shows all these. I mean, basically in Genesis you have all this family melodrama that the whole kingdom of God depends upon or is, you know, contingent on, and you know it makes sense. I mean, probably all about cities not being torn apart about families getting along, about brothers not fighting, and and, and, and it's all about, I mean, it's all this real-world stuff that Genesis is also all about. And, you know, if your religion is mainly kind of a bunch of theological abstractions, you, you might not understand why Proverbs is in the Bible, but if you actually read more of the Bible, then you think, well, Proverbs has to be in the Bible. It has to be. It's about this stuff. So, um, I started just thinking about it and you know i just eventually had an interest in writing a book and i had it proposed to me i started working on it didn't have much time and then i got you know some support to do it and I basically in a couple of years i wrote the book in the final form that it, it, it's in I, I thought it would only take me half that time but um you know i was doing a lot of other stuff as well so um thanks to some support i was kept focused i uh still write about wisdom at net that's my blog and I I hope to write more about wisdom and and also promote it in other forms besides books. But, um, so that's, that's so, you know, officially two or three years was the official project. But the, the other answer is I've been working on it for a while. Yeah. And it all started because it all started because I tried to memorize the parts that didn't make sense in the terms of like an organized sequence, you know, long paragraphs, et cetera. Right. And try to think about how that would work eventually, you know, like that thing of, I just quoted about the ant in chapter six, and it's repeated twice in Proverbs. You know, I've read that a thousand times, and suddenly I read it and was thinking about it, and it just jumped out at me without having any chief officer or ruler. And I started thinking about, you know, when a child is growing up, and you saw this in the book, he, he usually, I mean, my, this is just my, you know, observation on life. It's not I don't have a direct scripture for this, but, you know, a child sees his parents as these people who do whatever they want. They decide when they're going to go to bed, they decide what they're going to eat, and when they're going to drink, and, right. and everything else. So one idea of freedom that can easily develop is that when I am an adult, I do whatever I want. And that's totally delusional. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, the only people who have parents like that are very, very dysfunctional homes with, with lots of problems, including how to make a living. No, we're constrained in a thousand ways, and are grateful for it because it, you know, we meet those constraints, and we have, we empower ourselves through that. But um, a, a, a child needs to grow up and realize he's going, going from having external parents to being his own parent. That's what's got to happen, and then he can perhaps be a good parent for a child when he has one. So, that's the idea is that you need to be a ruler over yourself. And over and over again, the Proverbs is about, you have, well, a couple things going on. Proverbs addressing you and talking about people as if they are body parts. All right. Another thing from chapter six, you know, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. And most of these are body parts, haughty, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Notice by the way, these aren't feet that stumble. You know, it's like in Ephesians, Paul, uh, when Paul talks about the Gentile way of life, he doesn't say these people can't resist temptation. He says they're greedy for it. You know, they, they run to it. They, they, they've, they've developed this need for it. Um, so the question is, are you in control of your body parts as a person who serves the Lord or are, are your body parts basically running away with you? Are you under the control of your impulses? And so then, you know, you have these things like a slack hand causes poverty with a hand of the diligent makes rich. Because that that's ten four, and then later on, twenty one twenty five, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse the labor. Okay, it's like he's an employer. that doesn't have a workforce he can trust. You know, his he's not trained his limbs to get busy when they need to be.
2: Right. So same thing for
1: speaking, you know, um, you, there are passages, you know, about words where you think, okay, a good person is going to produce good words, and a bad person is going to produce bad words, and this is just going to be automatic, right? This is just, this is this, uh, you know, but when you look at the details and you realize that good people are people who actually spend their time not saying words that come into mind because they know that it's better not to speak everything that's in your head, that it comes into your head. So. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So it's like, I mean, one of the analogies I use in, in the book is based on several proverbs is, you know, you keep your gun holstered. You know, you, you, you have the right to bear arms, but you don't shoot indiscriminately. This is a dangerous power you have between, between your lips, behind your lips, in your mouth, your tongue. And you've got to think before you speak, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak. So um, it's about discipling yourself, discipling your own limbs to be basically the wind at your back rather than a drag on you,
2: hmm. to
1: be things that you can use for, producti- for productive life and to share with others rather than to tear others down and to sabotage yourself. So like thirteen three again, whoever... Obviously, I had an ellipsis even in the screen in front of me. I don't actually have all this summarized by reference. Whoever <laughs> guards his mouth, yeah, I, I can't, that would be. Anyway, whoever guards his mouth, preserve his life, he opens wide his lips, comes to ruin. So you're, you're being a good person and having good intentions even. If someone makes you angry, you can still spout off stuff that is going to not be helpful hmm. to you or to him or to anyone else you've got to learn to control that. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other stuff. So there's a lot of things in here um, about self-control and then not being put under the dominion of others. I mean, for example, of that last thing, um, when it talks about the adulterous woman, you know, again, this is also chapter six, um, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with your her eyelashes. Now that's an interesting cultural reference there. But the point is, if you're captured, you're not much of a king. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you're held prisoner, you are not at, you're not in control. So it's all about not being basically enslaved to your limbs, to your impulses, to things like wine. All right. You know, it's interesting to me that the Proverbs talked about wine the same way what Proverbs talks about anger. Does it want you to be a man of wrath? Um, what does it say? It says, Make no friendship with a man of given to anger or no go no go go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Again, you're trapped by your own habits. You yourself have trapped yourself because you've become this kind of person who can't keep quiet or not start a fight. Earlier, nineteen nineteen, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty for if you deliver him, you only have to do it again. So he's addicted. And then it talks about wine. Wine is a hawker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So, you know, stuff we think about in terms of a hardcore addiction, the Bible would tend to tell you that your own behavior is can be an addiction too. I don't I don't know that word is helpful by the way, but it means a strong, irresistible urge. Let's let's go with that. It seems irresistible. You don't want to have to deal with those if you don't if you don't have to. So the best way is get free of them and develop different habits. So, you know, I guess in general, going back when I said, talking about my one-sentence summer at Proverbs, you, you want to think of not only that you know the right thing and you know to do the right thing, but you've been practiced at habitually doing the right thing so you do it easily. You want to make yourself a better obeyer of God, for lack of a term. Now, you, you don't have to be perfect. I mean, God knows you're a sinner. He's going to forgive you. But the point is, For that very reason, you can always improve on yourself. You can always look for ways in which to increase your ability to observe all that Christ has commanded, and thus be a disciple. So what I saw about the Great Commission also, I mean, about the Dominion Mandate, also applies to the Great Commission. You know, going into all the world and baptizing nations and teaching them to observe all the things that he's commanded, that includes teaching yourself and teaching your limbs, your hands and feet to be better disciples, to be, like I say, the win in your back, not to be things that drag you down um, and your attitudes as well.
0: One of the benefits that I see in the Proverbs and uh, you helpfully illustrate in your book as well is the gift of self-awareness in, in terms of, we've all met people who lack self-awareness and sort of the comedy that that could be, but you've already described that the Bible is shooting for, especially the Proverbs, is shooting for a kind of person. And so to force you to think about what the human condition is or what you getting to know yourself. Basically, the thing that I got over and over is, man, we are just not ready. Like life is very, very hard. This is why we're given parents. And then as you're saying, you know, the goal is to eventually parent yourself. But man, <laughs> human beings are not ready. Life is going at full speed, you know, and we're given parents to sort of help us on the on-ramp. But, uh, it, it, it's so funny as I, not only as I look at myself and, and, and those, uh, around me, but yeah, just, we are not ready.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, there's a couple of ways I, I could go with that. One of the things I got, a, a, just recently, I was remembering learning how to ride a, my parents teaching me how to ride a bike. And I started thinking about that whole concept that, you know, how do you teach a child to ride a bike? Well, you really don't do much. You hold the bike up for them. You push them you encourage them a lot, then you let go of the bike and see how far they make it and try to encourage them to then go through that again. You know, the child has to also take off from that, you know, and teach himself, right? He has to keep going. Um, But that's that's why you said the word on That suddenly made me think of that. Um, I think what you're talking about, when I talk about sloth, there's a lot of different ways sloth can be discussed. And one of the ways is all the, all the Proverbs talked about, about sleep hmm. and um, how dangerous it can be to love sleep. And it turns out that it's not only sleep. Um, it's not like, for instance, the slugger, the guy who falls asleep and his, um, his field gets overrun with weeds and his whole inheritance is kind of wasted. He, he wasn't Rip Van Winkle. He didn't just sleep once. He slept a lot. And not only did he not the sleep, but he didn't go look at his field and say, oh, no, this is not good. i better do something about it. All right? So it wasn't just sleep. It was just not paying attention. You know, and the problem is truth doesn't They just don't sleep. It says know well the condition of your flock mm. and open wide your eyes, open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. So it's about keeping your eyes open, being aware, not being, not assuming that life can go on automatic and everything will be fine not being afraid because it's, it's too dangerous, but rather having a kind of reasonable and realistic awareness of what's going on. You no, know, it's funny. God, only God knows the future and Proverbs would certainly uh, teach that. But at the same time, it teaches that we should think about the future and make reasonable provisions for things, not always going the way we'd like, you know, actually the, um, the parables about the wise and foolish people in Matthew's gospel. I noticed the the first one. I think one of the earliest references: the wise and fool, foolish builder. You know, the foolish one doesn't bother to build it in a location with a foundation. He he just assumes there'll never be enough rain to knock his house down. And I think the last parable that mentions wisdom is the um, wise and foolish virgins, uh, virgins. And the wise, you know, virgins brought extra oil. The foolish ones don't. So, just b you have, you are responsible for, responsible for some degree of preparation for contingencies even though you don't know the future that's just basic wisdom you sh- you can't live as if everything's always going to be the way it is th- to what you're used to you know the prodigal son i doubt he intentionally planned on spending all that all his inheritance in you know one year or whatever what happened is there was a famine, and he hadn't planned for the famine. So all of a sudden, you know, I guess prices go up. All of a sudden, he's run out. You got to you got to think about the future. You got to think about what you're doing. And therefore, that includes thinking about yourself. You are your own flock. You are your basic field, right? You're, you're Adam. You're made out of the ground. So to be a fruitful tree, like in Psalm 1, you need to kind of think about yourself. Think about what you need to do to irrigate yourself, to fertilize yourself, to make yourself more productive. And it's a project. It's not something you need to. It, no one's. You know, this is not. We're not talking about instantaneous change here. Right. But we're talking about developing character, getting rid of bad habits, finding ways to increase new ones, good ones, and and you know, and just basically becoming more. Serving God with more alacrity. I like the word alacrity. I don't think it's used enough. so I'm using it lot this interview. <laughs> but I don't know if that's kind no, of what yeah. you're referring to. But that, that that awareness and awareness, self-awareness, not a sense of, I mean, not what people think of me and not how do I compare to others. That will sometimes can, if you'll use it rightly, provoke you in a good way, you know, but also just how have I done this year? How could I be a better husband? How could I be a better, um employer, employee, what would make me more winsome and more honoring to God? And what would make me more wise?
0: Right. It seems like what would, um, you know, I was thinking about it. If, if your book was just to find its way into maybe a a Barnes and Noble and then wasn't put in the religious section, it would probably go in the self-help world, you know, to a, to a pair of secular eyes. This looks like, you know, it'd be better. And here's some things, tools to help you etc but i think one of the differences you were just mentioning in terms of um even with the great commission christians have been given a mandate and and we are to be about the kingdom first and proverbs is there to illustrate to you here's a human condition just on neutral if you let gravity take you into the world this is what it'll look like but we actually have a lot of work to do and here's how to do it best
2: yes
1: and also And one of the things I said that I'd never write a book, I never thought I would write a book like this. Actually, I've always been more emphasizing the corporate life and the flow of history rather than kind of talking about what I guess it's called practical theology. Right. And, but this time I'm saying, you know, you can have this great structure. You can have, you model a family, model the church, but you want to be a good brick in that structure. You want to fit in and support a lot of weight, help others and not have to be helped, not be taking away the energy of others, you know, you want to be, you want to be adding strength to others rather than as much as possible depending on others. Now, by the way, there is nothing wrong with depending on others. We all do it. But what I'm saying is if you let yourself become poor, that's less for everyone else who's poor through other, who who had no, who had no choice in the matter. You know what I'm saying? You cannot just let yourself become unuseful. You know, Paul talks a lot about people being useful for godliness. You want to be useful. As much as it in you lies, you want to work on that. Because that's the first thing you can do to not take away from others. Mm. I mean, if you know, you know, the Bible tells us to help others. I mean, actually, it does have a kind of a, a an order here. If we say it's more blessed to give than receive, we're saying it's more blessed to reproduce than to consume. Mm. So, again, there are lots of people... Who can't do this, who, you know, God's providence has interfered in some way, and you know, I'm not asking to judge anyone else, but it is simply a fact that the only way we can produce for people who need help, the best way we can provide the most help for them, is by encouraging the generality of the populace of Christian people to be as productive as possible, and as useful as possible. That's the only way it's done, otherwise we all end up in poverty. There's no other choice. And I can can mean that literally as far as economics, or I can mean it more in a a metaphorical
0: way. Right. One thing, as I read this, I was thinking about just growing up. One thing I think that folks lack, when we talk about, you you were saying, um, and you say this in the book, that the kind of person that the Proverbs are after, basically the wisdom is more valuable than the things it might get you. I feel like that's, I've come to value that only in the last several years, because I've been around men who were very helpful, who could look at a situation and wisely, uh, basically a quarterback that can wisely see the defense, who knows, who who can see what's not obvious. And what a blessing that's been to me. And this may be a way overstatement, but I'll I'll overstate it and then I'll pitch it to you to maybe uh, either you can agree or, or steer me back. But Man, growing up, I didn't meet a lot of men who were wise or who had gravitas. Like, I think I can name men with gravitas on two hands and maybe that's it. Um, So having met men like that, it's something now that I see like, oh, Proverbs makes total sense. I want to become a man who is helpful to people.
1: That's good. You know, what's funny is that, you know, what does wisdom say? It says I have strength. You know, you kind of get confident after a while, which is weird because the Proverbs is always talking you about how the wise man listens to advice.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, actually, I just realized that Proverbs one actually begins that way. The first thing it says about a wise man is that he listen to instruction. But you do that, and it, you start gaining this kind of godly confidence because you you start learning the way the world works, and then you can. One, if you know, if you I guess if you I think if you know your behavior backs up what you want to say rather than that you're just reading from a textbook, like the Bible, you know? Right. That That is tremendous. That will give you gravitas. That will make you feel like you have gravitas. That's almost entirely hypothetical to me, but I, I feel that really a lot. I just realized, you know, I, I want to go back to something you said about this book being in the self-help section. Yeah. I, I just have, I, I have to tell you this, because I think it, it's, it'll be interesting. I think it's kind of funny. You know, I started getting wind of that as I, as I read Proverbs or thinking about this stuff, I started noticing like, you know, habit kind of stuff it comes, it comes through memes and, you know, through the internet and stuff. And I started realizing that the authors out there, and after a while, I started having like a list of books I was not allowed to read because I did not want them influencing my book on Proverbs because I didn't know if I wanted to be, I didn't want to give them all the credit for what I was saying, even, you know, and I didn't want to disagree with them and have to argue with them. I didn't want it to be a factor. Like for instance, um James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, not a Christian book at all, but um very a helpful book, I think I think you could glean a lot out of it some ideas i mean you could you could take stuff about developing good habits and about how they're basic to identity and how it can trip you up because they you get involved in your identity and um but a lot of it's you know very boring stuff about ways to you know get yourself developing different habits but there is a lot of stuff out there, and it is does correspond to a lot of what you're saying, what we read in Proverbs. That should make sense, because we're told in Kings that Solomon was, you know, wiser than all the writings of the wiser men of the East. And that, okay, that makes him better, but it doesn't say that their writings were trash. It actually says they have some good ideas. Right. You know, and, and so there's, there's kind of a witnessing conversation going on in Proverbs and in King Solomon's life and later. Um, that I think corresponds to that. I also, and another book I re, I absolutely refuse to read is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Um, because I, you know, he are saying stuff that I like so much. Not all, because again, not a Christian. Sure. You know, but, but he still, he has some good things. And what, that's what, by the way, I, we haven't even mentioned this yet, but one of the things I realized is that Proverbs is the book for masculinity, hmm. it is the book for young men. Um, it is written as a conversation of a father to sons. And then actually it flips a little bit in the first book, uh, which chapters one through nine, it flips to wisdom talking to her son, which actually corresponds to how the whole flow of Proverbs goes. Cause the last, the last book of Proverbs is Proverbs 31, which is the King Lemuel's mother teaches him about what he should avoid. And what are the, what are the signs of a, a good wife? You know, he, he has a cross poem that he's learned from her. So, it's interesting. It, it is a book meant to train young men. I mean, everything it applies to women too, but it's written in the form of a, advice to a young man. It's interesting because the, the godly wife at the end is, actually has a lot of those virtues of are in, encouraging the sons. That tells you it's for both, but right. it is primarily kind of organized as a, as a word to a young man. And that includes, of course, the fact that wisdom is held up as a woman, which is exactly how you would talk to a young man about well, these idealized <laughs> there's a there's a good woman, there's wisdom, and there's a bad woman, folly, and you want you want the guy to reject folly and choose wisdom, and at the very end, the king's mother is telling her to um telling him telling him all to um reject the ways of women who take who rob strength, take strength from kings and destroy kings, and then there's a golly woman over here who makes her arms strong, girds herself with strength, you know, she has strength just like wisdom does.
0: I'm curious in terms of uh. Your book couldn't have come out a better time, no matter when you started it. Uh, the copyright is 2020. Uh, what a year for your book to come out. And sort of on the heels, too, of, of other guys you've mentioned, like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules. And you mentioned in the book, and it's funny, you said you were doing your best not to read anything because you mentioned a book that you said, you know, you state, I didn't read it. But there's a, you gave the example of the pitcher who was given extreme ownership.
2: Yeah,
1: the title of that book was Extreme Ownership, which sounded exactly what I was saying with take the minion. Right. You know, the, the minion mandate applies to yourself. Now, that's an incredible story. Cause, and by the way, I know nothing about baseball. I'm not a sports guy at all. Um, <laughs> but this guy literally had the ability to pitch and was, you know, I was it they had a chance in the major leagues? But anyway, I don't remember what happened. But he, he literally lost, you know, he almost lost his position. And he did lose it for a while simply because he could not get up in the morning. He could not, he was like my my weird illustration of a slave you're trying to rent who's owned by something called sleep. He was owned by sleep. He, he was not able to develop himself. He was not yeah. able to do anything with himself. Right. And he read this book, and I didn't know anything. I had to use it. was in a news story. The news story was my source, but it mentioned that book, Total Ownership. And I, I mean, I like I said, I haven't read the book yet, but I should read it now just the, the the title was just exactly what I was talking about as far as dominion. And the illustration was great. And by the way, there's something else about my book that, you know, we haven't mentioned yet. Is that all through the Bible, we have all these um, things about sleep. Proverbs talks about it. And then the parables, Jesus talks about the servant who gets whipped because he fell asleep on duty. And then, the, then all the synoptic gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples aren't able to stay awake and the epistles, okay? But that's one of the things. It all starts with Proverbs. It's not really before that. You don't have examples of people really, you don't have sleep being warned against before Proverbs. And that goes along with other things. Like you don't have all these anti-alcohol diatribes before Proverbs. There's almost nothing negative said about alcohol. There is a drunkard mentioned, and that's a bad thing, mainly because a drunkard will not be able to work and he's raising income through criminal means. That's in the law. You have, um, I guess, Lot's daughters get Lot drunk. That's a bad thing. So you get the idea that it makes you vulnerable and manipulatable. But you mainly, you have drink as a celebration. You have sleep as a blessing. And that's also in Proverbs. But what happens apparently in Proverbs is that my kind of ad hoc hypothesis is that Solomon is dealing with an Israel that has become wealthier. Hmm. And therefore now people use good things to sabotage themselves. They can be, they can fool themselves. I have a whole bunch of material about this. And I think chapter three, if I am remember right, I did not have the book in front of me. Um, but you know, that in Solomon's, I mean, if you read the law, sleep is a blessing. All right. Well, yeah, it's a blessing, but you do too much of it because you think you can get away with it. You develop bad habits and all of a sudden you're not able to deal with life anymore. You, life gets away from you. You're in poverty. You're not able to handle life. Drink is a blessing. You drink too much, you become a, another kind of sluggard. You know, you can't work. You become dysfunctional in every way because you're let about by this thing. You've let yourself... So, I I, I mean, I think about that Proverbs is kind of written... I mean, granted, compared to the level of prosperity we have today, Proverbs is nothing. But compared to the kind of agrarian society they had probably before... And the rise of a big city where, where silver is as common as stone. Well, that means there's a whole bunch of ways to make a living. And there's a whole bunch more freedom. You can maybe sleep in and then go get another job in another part of town where no one knows you and be a day laborer and make some money and go spend on alcohol, party, get drunk, and then repeat the cycle. But in the process, you're consuming everything you make, and then you're getting older, and you're getting less able to do a productive job, and you're becoming more unattractive as a labor, as a laborer, because you can't labor. So, you know, all that. And I think, you know, frankly, the um, setup for the adulterous woman in, in Proverbs chapter 7 is just weird compared <laughs> to previous um, texts. I mean, in the law, I would say, well, the way I read the laws about adultery and uh, fornication and all that. It seems designed to protect women from predatory males, but that's not the, what you have going on right. in Proverbs. So, again, right. it's like a diff, they, they, their society has changed a little bit, and new kind of vices are coming up. And it basically is, if you're wealthy enough, you can fool yourself, and you can destroy yourself. And, I mean, you know, the the curse for, for sin, at, from Genesis two on, 3 on, is, you know, thorns and thistles are going to be worn up on the ground. There's going to be scarcity. But the way of a fool and the way of the slugger, the proverb says, which I can't remember the reference right now, is a, he makes, him, makes a head of thorns for himself. We become our own source of scarcity. We get provided with all this good stuff, like stuff that our, our ancestors could not even imagine. And we're bored with it, and we end up destroying ourselves, making ourselves, impoverishing ourselves, sabotaging ourselves. And, you know, that's true for, I mean, that's today, I think a lot of our vices are a result of having too many toys. There is nothing wrong with having them, but there has to be a certain discipline and mindset about it and an ambition to get better and to actually do things that are productive with that stuff.
0: I think that's fascinating in terms of uh, considering the way that these prohibitions are set up uh, being different from the law in some degree. The books we've mentioned, 12 Rules for Life for Atomic Habits or Extreme Ownership, all of those are bestsellers in in our society. Why do you think those are hopping off the shelf?
1: Two things. I mean, 12 Rules for Life is also about young men wanting guidance on how to be young men and adult men. Right. I mean, that's one aspect. Um, The other two are more generic and they're just about being productive and not being, realizing that distractions, they're, they're sabotaging you. They're ruining your life. In fact, I mean, look, let's talk about, the chapter where I talk about the adulterous woman, I I tie it into pornography because it seemed to be like a fantasy element to the whole situation that I think is part of the whole kind of cyber porn thing that's going on with young men. There are secular non Christian sites, you know, NoFap. There's another one that the name is slipping from my mind right now, and I don't. I'm not endorsing or I'm not saying I I know that these are things to join or whatever. I don't not that much experience with them, but what I'm saying is they are obviously I've read about them and they're obviously people who realize that being into this stuff is like apart from any other moral consideration, it's like being on drugs. Mm. It is like being addicted to a drug. You know, you're, you're, you're basically chasing a dopamine high and you're not able to control your time. You're not able to control your life. And so people want to just detox. They literally think of it like, you know, I'm going to get my life together and I'm not even sure what that looks like. But the first thing I'm going to do is start, you know, start clicking on a calendar and just trying to get through the week without having to look at this stuff. And then a month and then a year, you know, they just try to add to their time. And in the meantime, then they think maybe when I'm my mind and just not hooked on this for a while, I will figure out my the rest of my life, which is never going to happen unless at least I get this out of my, my life. I think that there's some wisdom in that. I think that's a good thing, but if people realize that their are toys and their lack of morality also to some extent to some, i mean to a great extent I think that you know they, they're not necessarily going to see it that way right. that is a major factor in whether or not they they can have any self confidence in general and also whether they're successful or have better odds at being successful in life in other
2: ways.
0: Mark, I don't want to take any more of your time. You've been awesome. I greatly appreciated the book. If uh, you had one thing sort of that you, in in terms of the Proverbs and in terms of Solomon says, uh, of encouragement to parents who have, uh, as you mentioned, it's obviously for everyone, but this is a directives for young men. So parents of young men, what would you want to tell them?
1: Well, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of ways you could use Proverbs in child rearing. But the things that, based on my piece of my book and the stuff that I found interesting and underused before, I would say the main thing is set an example of yourself, one, of wisdom in general, lead by example. Two, though, make them know, without being pessimistic or, you know, without sharing anxiety, you need to teach how to deal with the problems, life's problems, and limitations about anxiety. But make sure they have a, a view of adulthood. It involves... Being under constraints and having to make choices that are going to have consequences. In other words, make them realize the real version of freedom is being able to parent yourself, not the um, fake version of freedom, which is I get to do whatever I want. Right. You know, that's, uh, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard lesson to get to put into somebody. And, you know, a child is dreaming about the time of being an adult in the sense that he, he reads superhero stories. I mean, then all of a sudden he becomes big and strong that's like crack cocaine. I mean, that's exciting. You know, that's exuberant. That's just incredible. Oh, now I'm big and strong. and I don't have to, and I'm leaving my parents home. I'm going to be independent. Well, that's a time when you can really hurt yourself. So just be aware and, you know, hopefully they'll they'll learn that. So that would be my number one obvious piece of advice. Um, Obviously a lot of more, you get a lot more granular, but that's not really what I wrote problems about. I wrote it more about the kid who's trying to, ride that bike in a, in a correct way, you know, after his parents have pushed them. And so you, that's kind of how you got to do it. Right. So that's an important element of it. Awesome. Um, I do want to say one, uh, one yeah. of the things your readers is just cause you brought it up. I mean, you said this is a perfect year for my book. It is in one sense. Um, it's also the perfect year for um, not having a good opportunity to like promote the book in person and speak at conferences and all the rest. So I just, <laughs> If anyone likes the book, if they read it, please, um, if you hate it, be sure to write me a private email. But if you like it, if you love it, (laughs) make sure to help other people and maybe promote it on Amazon.com. I actually do agree, by the way, that my book could be a self-help book. Maybe I'll write a self-help version in some way that's not... I don't want to hide my witness, but I want to be more accessible. Also, by the way, again, I want to mention my blog, net that these people can read some other stuff I've been writing, because I'm still thinking about these issues and trying to write on them, write about them. And um, so, anyway,
0: yeah. Yeah, but before you go, I wanted to mention, I said this sort of in the, in the introduction, that uh, your book on Mark, that Canon actually publishes, was a huge help to me in Bible College in Minneapolis. So, I
1: thank wanted to you. thank you for that. Yeah. That's, that's so great. I, you know, if you ever want to talk about any other books I've written or anything else, just let me know. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk about that book again. See I can get to this. Cause I, I was very proud of that book in a way though. I actually did improve on it after I wrote it, unfortunately, but anyway, <laughs> that's what happens when you keep thinking of something. Hey, uh, well, th- thank you so much for your time.
0: Of course, man. We'd love to have you back anytime. And folks can find Solomon says on Amazon. Is there anywhere else you'd want to send them? You said your blog, Solomon Says.net.
1: Yeah, and of course I can get it from the publisher, but actually I like Amazon because then you can show people that you can get more publicity there, especially if you'll give me a review as a as a confirmed as a confirmed reader. And it's on by the way, it's also on Kindle Unlimited as well as it's in the Kindle forms too. So Sweet. um if, if there are any of your readers care about that. So thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Mark. God bless.